0: Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Can you believe it? We're halfway through. Somebody counted the words and said that we are exactly, or even counted the verses, and said there are 111, I think there's 111 verses before this, uh, that precede this passage and 111 verses after this passage um, I don't think they realize that when Solomon wrote this, he didn't write it with verses; he just wrote it. But, anyways, we're we're halfway through the book, and and we're going to see a little bit of a shift take place. But before we do, let me remind you of where we've been. I'll then give you a little bit of a a, a plan of where I hope to go today, and then we will look in and read God's Word together. So. Here's where the author has been. He has been informing us and telling us about the folly, the foolishness of the pursuit of wealth, and he has contrasted that with the wisdom of the pursuit of God. The folly of the pursuit of wealth has been contrasted with the wisdom of pursuing God. Now, he's gone through and he has said, listen, as far as um, pursuing wealth, Wealth and pursuing status and pursuing promotions and pursuing um, uh, success. Those things, when they become ultimate, they will never satisfy you. They will never be that which fulfills you. The lie is that if you just got a better job, if you just had more money, if you just had a new relationship, if you just had a, a better car, or a new this, or a new that, or you had this great invention, or if you had your name in lights, then you would be satisfied. Then you would find satisfaction in this life. If only, and it keeps you pursuing. It's kind of the proverbial um, uh, carrot in front of the horse. He keeps running after it, but he never attains it. And this is where the author has been going. And people have been have struggled in the book of Ecclesiastes because as soon as the author makes his case that the the pursuit of satisfaction and fulfillment in things like wealth and relationships and and um, acknowledgement and promotion, he turns around and sa- and praises God for these very things, and so people get get baffled they 're going, "Wait a second, I thought you said that those things are." are vain and that they are just chasing after the wind. The difference is is when one considers the pursuit of those things as ultimate, then that is vanity and chasing after the wind. But the author has been very clear that um, God, when God is our ultimate pursuit, that all of those other things then are gifts from God and they can be enjoyed um, by those who, who possess them. And so things like friendships and relationships and, and uh, promotions and great ideas and those types of things are all valuable when they come under uh, the, the rulership and the headship of God Almighty. When God is ultimate, those things then all have value, but they, they have their place. And so that's where we've been. The folly of the pursuit of wealth contrasted with the wisdom of the pursuit of God. So here's where I'm going to go today. We are going to... Our text today is chapter 6, verse 10 through 7, verse 14. And our text today begins and ends with the powerful, sovereign, eternal creator. It begins and ends with... The powerful, sovereign, eternal creator. And as man, and with man as the limited creature. We will see the frailty of man. So we're going to see this contrast. It begins and ends. God is powerful, omnipotent, sovereign, in control, um, ultimately wise, knows the future, and it is going to be contrasted with man who's the creature and is therefore um, doesn't know the future, is somewhat, is frail, does not have the wisdom of God. And we're going to see this contrast. And so the, the beginning and the end um, puts forth these two pictures of both God and man. In between those two, Pictures, the preacher is going to get very practical. He puts forth this picture of how unlimited God is and how limited man is, and he will then ask the question or provide an answer to the question of, well, then if that's the case, how should we live? And it's going to be very practical. In fact, As we enter this second half of the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the author of our text is going to get very practical. He's going to start talking about, well then, if the pursuit of all of these things does not bring satisfaction, and if God is truly the source of our joy, then how then shall we live? And so, we're going to enter into that discussion this morning how then shall we live if the preacher has demonstrated that the fear of God is both the beginning of wisdom and the end of a matter how will he will now attempt to demonstrate how do we live in light of the fact that God and the fear of God is the beginning and the end of all things how shall how we shall and how we are going to live it's going to uh, require us to think a little bit differently because as we go through our text today, you might be thinking, my goodness, I, I don't think that the preacher, the author of our text is all that smart because he kind of sounds like a, kind of a Debbie Downer. Um, and I don't know, does that really make sense? Is that really how we should live? But Let's hear the preacher out. And it's going to force us to perhaps reorient our thinking and to rewire how we think and how we perceive of situations. He is going to confront us with some really challenging issues and then force us to think about them, maybe think differently than we've ever thought about them before. And then finally, the last thing I'll do is I will attempt to make an application um, to Advent, the season that we are celebrating. So we're going to begin and end with God as um, great, powerful, mighty, and wise in comparison to man, who is um, entirely limited. In between that, we are going to um, address the question: Well, then, if God is great and we are frail, then how should we live in relationship to God, to the God who is great and unlimited? And then finally, does that have any application? to um, the incarnation um, that we are anticipating during this season. So, let's go ahead and let's uh, read, follow along with me as we read our text this morning. And uh, we'll trust that the Lord blesses the hearing of his inerrant word. Chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man? Well, he lives the few days of his vain life, which he, which pa- which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So we begin in chapter six, verse ten, and we're going to begin. And, and the author begins with the frailty of man. In other words, man is not invincible. Despite all of his claims, despite all of his um, his puffed up speech, man is not invincible. Man seeks to make a name for himself, but the author says he already has a name. We, we oftentimes seek to make a name for ourselves. We put our names... We, we, people might put their names on buildings or do a great exploits and great deeds, great adventurers, have their names remembered in history. We seek to make a name for ourselves, but the preacher, the author of our text says, man already has a name. And in our text, that name is Adam, or Adam. I need you to pay just quick attention here. I think it's in your notes. But the name that man has, so notice how it begins. <clears throat> Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he is. We know what man is. The word there is Adam. Which is very interesting, because when we go back, this is a reference back to the book of Genesis. When we go back to the book of Genesis, why is, why is mankind named Adam? Because he comes from the dirt, which is the word Adamah. Adamah. So out of the dirt comes man. Mankind comes is named Adam because he was taken from the ground, Adamah. Man, the point here being, you don't, not here to teach you Hebrew, the point here is that man has his source in the dirt. His origin is the dirt. And from dust he came and to dust he will return. Man has been named and it is known what man is. We know exactly who he is. The point here is is that man is not self-existing. He is not self-sustaining. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. He is not ultimate. He comes from the dirt. Now, I don't want you to get a, a wrong idea of the scriptural view of mankind. You should understand that mankind, men and women is the pinnacle of God's creation. It is God's final act of creation and it was the pinnacle of his creation. You and I, mankind are the pinna- is the pinnacle of God's creation. But we are still created. We are not ultimate. We are not eternal. We are not all-knowing. We are not all-wise. all, um, all wise. There is something above us. And the author brings that out. There is something above man. And that is his creator. You and I, mankind, the author says, is limited in two things that he points out. He's limited in strength and he's limited in knowledge. See, we don't have all strength and we don't have all ability. And we don't know everything. In fact, he he asks this question, who can dispute with the stronger? Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute With one stronger than he. So there is one stronger than you and I. And it is the one who made us. We are limited in strength and we also are limited in knowledge. Who can dispute with the one stronger And who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days? Man doesn't even know what's ultimately good for him. He thinks that he knows what is good for him, but he deceives himself. He thinks that the good times will never end, but the Bible informs us that life is but a vapor. We think that this is going to go on forever, and I'm just going to go off into... And, and the good times will never end, but James and other authors in the scripture tell us that life is but a vapor. And after death, we have no idea what will take place. You and I don't know the future. We are limited in both power and knowledge. You don't even know what the rest of this day is going to bring. You have plans, but there's no guarantee that you are going to fulfill the plans or fill out the agenda that you have made for the day you don't know the future and when you pass and go to be with the Lord you have no idea what's going to happen after that what's going to happen on this earth you don't know the future you and I would live a completely different life if we knew the future we would make completely different decisions but the bottom line is is we don't know and we are not all-powerful. We, we come from the dirt. We've we have, we have been created. There is one above us, a creator, who not only knows the future, but has decreed the future, and he is omnipotent. That is, he is all-powerful. So there is a creator. There is one who is stronger than us. There is one who is wiser than us. I love how um, it talks about who can dispute was one stronger than he. And I just, as I am studying this, I'm thinking, well, Adam tried. Lots of people have tried to dispute with their creator. Adam piled up words which proved pointless. The very first thing after Adam and, and, and Eve ate of the fruit of the knowledge of, the, of good and evil was that they hid from God. And God came walking in the cool of the day and said, Adam, where are you? And Adam replied, I feared because I, since I was naked. Thinking that he's got some angle to kind of confuse God or as an excuse for his rebellion. And God's response is, who told you that you were naked? In other words, his first words after his rebellion demonstrated his lack of knowledge. Despite, he thinks that, oh... I'm hiding from God and I'm going to be able to, uh, with my words, be able to divert God away from looking upon my rebellion. And his very words condemned him. And then he attempted to blame others for his rebellion. It's Eve whom you gave me. She's the problem and ultimately, God, you're the problem. Who is able to dispute with his maker? Do you think that this is, he's piling up words. Is this going to have any bearing? Is God going to say, oh, gee, that's a good point. Wow, I never really thought about that. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. Oh, and, and then Eve does the same thing, right? She says it's the serpent. Oh, I'm sure God is like, oh, well, thanks for that information. Everybody is piling up words. Everybody's trying to dispute with their Maker. But the preacher asks, Who can dispute with one stronger than He? The more words, the more vanity. An abundance of words do not sway God, nor does eloquence. God is both greater in might because he's the creator and he is greater in wisdom. And so what the author has done is he's tried to make a comparison. As he opens this section up, he's making this comparison between God and man. That God is all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful and man is a created being. He may be the highest of God's creation and has great honor and glory. In fact, Psalm, when we studied Psalm 8, uh, the psalmist asks you know, what is man that you are mindful of him and yet you have made him um, just a little bit lower than, than the angelic beings and you have made him just a little bit lower than, than the most glorious things in your creation. And so man has a very high place in God's creation. But we just need to remember that we are created and we are subject to our creator. So, God being both greater in might and wisdom then should prompt us to ask the question, well then, if that's true, then what actions would be to my advantage? How do I live in light of the fact that I am a creature and God is the creator? How do I live my life in a way that will, be, that will take advantage of this cre- creature-creator relationship? So then the preacher in chapter 7, verse 1 begins to talk about how we should live. Given that God is God and man is man, given that God is all-powerful, man is frail, given that God is all-wise and man doesn't know the future, how then should we live? And when we get into this, we I want to just point out that The preacher, there's a key word in here, and as we read it, many of you saw it, but it is the word better. And the preacher is informing, it will inform us that some ways are better than others. Some things are better than others. And and as I'm writing this this message earlier in the week, I'm thinking, this just flies in the face of um, cultural wisdom or the cultural norms. Contemporary thinking. In contemporary thinking, we are told that all ways are equal, that all views are the same, that everything is culturally defined, or that no one way is better than another way. That's just wrong. Some ways are better than other ways. People who say that all ways are the same, not there's, there's no right way or wrong way, None of those people can live that way. You cannot live that, well, all ways are the same. I can tell you this. The first time their boss holds back their paycheck, they will now turn around and, and the boss says, hey, listen, all ways are the same. And I just thought, you know, listen, you, I was going to pay you 100 bucks, or I think I'm just going to pay you 10 Because that's good for me, and since all ways are the same... Nobody can live that way. Some things are better than others. There are ways that are better than others. And the preacher is going to talk about there are some ways that are better than others. Now, let me also state this. This does not mean that the, quote, non-better ways are evil. So, he might say that Better is one way than another way. He's not saying that the other way is evil or that even that it's bad. He's just saying it, it could even be really good. It can be great. It's just not better. Like, peach cobbler is better than carrot cake. And that's true. It's not an opinion. That doesn't mean I don't have that, that carrot cake isn't good. Put some in front of me and I'll demonstrate that I'm appreciative of the fact that it is in front of me. I'm just saying that peach cobbler is better than carrot cake. The author is going to say better is one way than another way. He's not saying that the other way is wrong or bad. This is going to be really important when we get to the application. But Some ways are better than other ways. So, he begins with, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. Well, all right. So, a good reputation, I just put it this way, a good reputation is better than an attractive corpse. There's there's my paraphrase. So, a good name is better than, than an attractive course. And, and then he, he says this. He says, the day of death than the day of birth. And you're like, oh, wait a second. That doesn't seem to make sense. Like I told you, he's going to challenge us. He's going to um, force us to think differently than we probably have ever thought before. The day of death is better than the day of birth. What does that have to do with anything? Because here's this point, just like a good reputation is better than an attractive corpse, the day of your death, your true self is known to all. See, here's the thing. When you are born, you are innocent. You are perfect and you are loved by all. Everybody loves you. Oh, look at that baby. She's perfect. She's just wonderful. She's the greatest thing that there's ever been. Nobody has a problem with the individual on the day they're born. She's perfect. The greatest thing that has ever happened to me. But can you maintain that reputation all the way through your life into the day of your death? That's a challenge. To maintain that reputation throughout one's life is no small task. And so the preacher says a good reputation at death is better than a good reputation at birth. Why? Because everybody has a good reputation at birth. To have a good reputation on the day of your death, when you've interacted with people, you've made mistakes, you've erred, you've done all of these things, you've had opportunity to be dishonest and maybe you weren't, that is a big deal. And so a good reputation at death is better than a good reputation at birth. We make a good name for ourselves by glorifying God on the earth. And so he begins with a good name is better than precious ointment. This is probably the ointment that they put on a dead body. And the day of death than the day of birth. Everybody can have a good reputation on the day they're born. It is difficult to maintain that reputation all the way through our lives and glorify God in a way that allows people to say that person lived a God-honoring, God-glorifying life. There is, it is no small task to leave this earth with a good reputation. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on he shifts subjects a little bit and he says it is better to go into the house of mourning than than to go into the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living lay it to heart sorrow is better than laughter what for by sadness of the face a of, of face the heart is made glad the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth all right like I said, we've got to look at this a little bit differently. He's going to force us to rethink how, how we go about what is wise and how do we live before this God who is greater than us. And basically he says it, the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. Now most of us would say, well, I don't know. I prefer to go to a house party than the funeral house. the preacher is saying it's better to go to the house of mourning. He concludes by saying the house of mourning is the end of all mankind. Let me put it this way. In the house of feasting, one is not concerned with eternal matters. The temporal reigns. The party is superficial at best. One does not consider how well and wisely they are living their lives. At, at the party, at the house of mirth, at the, at the house of feasting, at the house party, at the joyful um, time together, we are more interested in transitory temporal things. Oh, is he dating her? I can't believe that person wore that outfit. Do you like the song? Is the DJ any good? This is my favorite song. I hate this song. That's what we talk about. This is why the preacher is saying, I want you to rethink what you're talking about. The house of mourning, though, in the house of mourning we begin to talk about eternal things. We talk about ultimate issues. Things like God. Things like death. What happens after death. Are we prepared for that? Did I raise my kids well? The party is superficial at best, but in the house of mourning, the living consider ultimate issues, things like death and eternity. These are not topics of the party. We are not listening to our favorite DJ and saying, tell me, what do you think happens after death, and how do you think we should prepare for uh, our, our... our, our kids, when they all die, no, it's a party. Eternal matters are often dismissed. They are often avo- avoided. What happens when I die? Who is God? Is there a God? Am I right with God? Every casket, funeral home, graveyard, etc. cries out, redeem the time. The wise consider death. But we are easily consumed with pleasure and we seek to avoid the discomfort of that conversation. But the preacher is saying, this is why the house of mourning is better because it forces you to talk about eternal things. He he does not have a problem with the house of feasting. He's just saying one's better than the other because one's dealing with eternal matters. You need to get those things settled. The wise person, the person who lives in a right relationship with God is going to ask ultimate questions. In one commentary, the author wrote this, Death is an enemy, but also an evangelist. Death is an enemy, but also an evangelist. We should note here that the author is not anti-party. So if you want to have a celebration or a party at your house, the author here is not saying don't do that. What he is saying is that places and situations that draw us to consider God and ultimate issues is better than those places where those topics are avoided. Folks, if you have not considered what happens when you die, what happens when you come face to face with the living God, I would encourage you to begin to seriously think about those things. But I know they're uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable, so we turn the music up. And we distract ourselves with frivolity so that we don't have to deal with those difficult questions. But the preacher is saying, deal with them. Know what's going to happen. Know where you stand in light of living as a creature to his creator. The author goes on. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the cackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Honest rebuke. Rebuke is not pleasant. But it is good. And we see that throughout the Proverbs and we see it in in many places. The song of fools is pleasant but it has no merit. The rebuke rebuke is good but it is not pleasant so who is the wise person notice this is the rebuke of the wise the wise person is the one who fears god and holds him in highest regard and therefore finds his place in divine revelation nothing of greater value than living as god has prescribed that's the wise person perhaps one of our group, some of our best examples in the bible of wise people would be the old testament prophets They may not have been the most popular people, but they were wise individuals, and they often came with a rebuke, and the rebuke of the wise. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. To hear Isaiah say, turn from your wickedness, to hear Ezekiel, to hear the prophets speak, is better than to hear your favorite song. Again, the preacher is forcing us to rethink and rewire our brains. In fact, And then he goes on, he says, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools and this is pointless. This would be just, you put dried twigs under a pot and you know how it crackles and it's like, yeah, that's the song of fools. It just, It's just noise. It's empty. He then goes on and talks about oppression being an affront to the wise and bribes having a corrupting influence. The oppression here then is the exercise of irresponsible power, that which the powerful inflict on others. And power goes to man's head. It destroys his reason. The moment he ceases to be... From, for the moment he ceases to be directed by, by principle, the once wise man begins to behave like a, pool, a fool. So oppression is an affront to the wise. Bribes have a corrupting influence. And so, it's the, and so it is good to hear the rebuke of the wise. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than it is to hear the song of fools. The song of fools is much more captivating. But again, better... He's not saying don't listen to your favorite music. He's just saying one thing is better than the other. And then he goes on. And he says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, But and the patient in spirit better than uh, the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Better is the end. Better is the end than the beginning. The bottom line is this, folks: nobody wins a race at the beginning. This is why I said, "Better is the end than the beginning." Nobody wins the race at the beginning. Nobody wins the game when it first starts. Getting to the end requires patience. Getting to the end requires endurance. That's why the end is better than the beginning. And then note this. This one kind of baffled me for a moment. But but look at this. Let me see where I'm at. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than than the proud in spirit. I thought that was really fascinating to me, and, I, and I, I wrestled with it, that patient in spirit is contrasted with proud in spirit. See, if I were writing this, I would say patient in spirit is better than impatient in spirit. He doesn't say that. He says patience in spirit is better than proud. I thought that was interesting. So that caused me to think about some of this material. And I began to think that patience is an act of humility. Impatience is arrogant and proud. It is self-centered. Patience considers others. And so there is this correlation then so so patience is is better because it is not proud. It thinks of others. It considers others. It um, uh, prefers others but proud is only, or is only going to think of himself the impatient will only think of themselves there is a correlation between impatience and anger James tells us that anger is the, is the attribute of a fool and that is why the, the preacher here says that anger lodges in the heart It works its way in, and this is why we need to deal with it quickly. This is why Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I don't know that he means that literally. In other words, you know, don't let sunset before, you know, deal with your anger before the sun sets. Well, if you get angry with something at 5.30, you don't have much time to deal with it, so. Unless it's summer, and then it's like, oh, i got a lot more time. I think the point of the issue is deal with it quickly. Deal quickly with your anger. And I've heard people say, yeah, but Jesus got angry. It's like, yeah, that's true. And you're not him. So so deal with it quickly. All right? And say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is is not from wisdom that you ask this. In other words, why were the good old days better than... uh, I mean, if we only lived back then. If only things were like they were back in the 50s. Or if only things were like when I was a kid. Or if only things were whatever. Nostalgia our rose-colored glasses. We tend to dismiss the negative of the, quote, good old days. But those days had their challenges as well. I I think maybe the best biblical example is when the children of Israel are, are in the wilderness and they want to go back to Egypt. And what do they say? We need to go back to Egypt. All we're doing is eating this bad manna. But back there we had leeks and fish and all sorts of good food. Those were the good old days. Yeah, you were slaves. They were not the good old days. Difficult times call us to look toward the promised land, not back to Egypt. Living in the past does not display wisdom. After all, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Folks, we can remember the past and and think about the past and all of that, but the good old days had their problems and the good old days aren't coming back this is the day God has given you. Rejoice and be glad in it. And then he goes on, he talks about receiving wisdom as wealth, that it's good. Too many squander what God has given them. That wealth without wisdom is not a benefit. And and then, he concludes by saying, in the day he oh, says Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked in the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The bottom line is this we've just at the beginning we established that God is the creator and he is all wise, and we are frail and we are the creature. And so the issue here is consider the works of God. Who can thwart what God has decreed? Who can thwart what God has decreed? Not your abundance of words or your so-called strength. Preachers calling us to consider what God has done. Even crooked things are meant by God for his glory. I'll give you a few examples. Pontius Pilate. Judas, Pharaoh, Joseph's brothers. Joseph told his brothers, you meant this for evil, and God meant this for good. The crooked, don't try to make straight what what you perceive to be crooked. God has ordered the world in such a way that even man's sin does not derail his decrees. And the bottom line is sometimes life is tangled. Sometimes things are just, we don't get them. But here we discover the preacher's view of God, and we would be wise to learn from the preacher and his wisdom. Sometimes we, I don't know, I I hear sometimes people say, well, God didn't want it to happen, but he allowed it to happen. It kind of sounds like God's making lemonade out of lemons. That's just not the biblical view. God doesn't say, oh, darn, I wish that hadn't happened. Here, let me turn it around and make it good. It's almost like we have this idea that there are two forces, two opposing forces, God and evil, sparring back and forth, and God ultimately wins because he takes the bad stuff that the evil one does or the devil does and turns it around and makes it good. First of all, the devil is not God's equal. He is God's creation. He is not the devil is not equal with God in any way, shape, or form. God is God. And there is no God and evil sparring back and forth, or that God reacts to the evil things that the devil does. Oh, gee, let me fix that. Let me turn it around for good. God is God and God is good. There are some things that God has done that are beyond our comprehension. God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. I hope this makes a little bit of sense. Let me add some, provide just a few Advent reflections and then <clears throat> we'll call it a day. I want to focus especially on chapter, on chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 8. And it's important that you let me qualify this, what I'm about to say, <clears throat> with what I said earlier, and that is understanding the word better. When we say one thing is better, it doesn't mean that the other thing is bad or the other thing is insufficient or inferior. It's just saying one thing is better than the other. That's all. In chapter 7, verse 1, the author writes that the day of death is better than the day of birth. And in verse, <coughs> verse 8, he writes, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. During this season, Advent, we focus our minds on the glorious birth of Christ, his beginning, the incarnation. I shouldn't say his beginning, he is eternal. So let me make sure I clarify that. He is eternal. The incarnation is the beginning of his earthly. um, He's putting on flesh, God is putting on flesh and dwelling amongst us. The incarnation. So we focus on the glorious birth of Christ. This was the fulfillment of the promise where God, where Paul writes, in the fullness of time, God brought forth His eternal purposes. Before this, eter- before the fullness of time, in, etern- in eternity past, the Triune God set forth His purpose to create and save mankind, and this would be done. Through Jesus, who would be born to Mary and dwell with his creation. This is a joyous season. This is a hopeful season. The birth of Christ is necessary because without the birth of Christ, you don't get the death of Christ. The day of death is better than the day of birth, and the end of the matter is better than its beginning. Jesus' death required his birth. But it is his death, resurrection, and return to glory um, is what saves us. None of us were saved when Jesus was born. His birth did not bring salvation to you and to I. Otherwise, he would have just been born and that would have been it. But he had to be born. He had to fulfill all righteousness in his life Then he had to die as a sin bearer and take upon himself our rebellion against him and be buried and rise again from the dead and ascend into heaven where he lives to rule and to reign forever and ever. In his birth, he is introduced as Christ to the shepherds. In his death, we see the fulfillment of his mission. If he fulfilled if he failed to fulfill all righteousness, his birth would have been in vain if he had been if if he had not died for the sins of his people his birth would have been in vain his birth points to his to his death we used to sing a song it's <coughs> been a long time but It's called Christmas Has Its Cradle and Easter Has Its Cross. The two of both are necessary, but one purchased your salvation. Jesus was faithful to accomplish what he decreed in eternity past. We celebrate that faithfulness during this season where the glorious eternal God humbled himself and suffered and did not attempt to make the straight path crooked but he gave himself to man's crooked plans that he might be exalted above every rule and authority. And we are reminded of that during this season of Advent. Father God, we give you praise and we give you thanks. Be with us now and help us to glean from the wisdom of the preacher and think about these things that he has given to us that we might live in a way that honors you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.